It's as if somebody said to God, God, how much do you love me? And God stretched out his arms on a cross and said, I love you this much. Do we believe that God loves us? I'll tell you how we know what we believe. We know what we believe by the way that we live and it's God's kindness, it's his forbearance, it's his patience that lead us to repentance. But be careful, by repentance I don't mean regret. Believers are not those who live lives of constant regret like Lake Wobegon, Garrison Keeler's Larry the Sad Boy who went forward at every invitation, who lived his life with a, a constant sense of remorse. No, that's not the way that believers live and that's not what repentance means. Repentance is not just feeling bad, much less is it trying to sort of make up for past wrongs. Repentance is, is really a, a change. It's a transformation of life. It's, it's turning, that's the Old Testament word, shuv, to turn, as the shakers used to sing, to turn, turn, until we come around right. In the New Testament, the word literally means to think after, to think again, to change your mind in a way that changes your conduct. And it's this that John the Baptist preached when he came into the wilderness. Would you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew again. We left off on Christmas Day with Joseph and Mary and Jesus settling in Nazareth and Jesus being called a Nazarene because that's what the prophet said would happen. Now we pick up in chapter three with verse one. Let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You may be seated. If we're going to come to the advent, the coming of God, we have to go through the desert. We have to listen to a preacher. And I don't know how you feel about listening to preachers, but... There's a lot of forgettable preaching and a, a lot of preachers make us want to just sort of maybe give up on, on church after all and it, it goes on in, interminably and I understand that. But here's a preacher whose voice we need to hear. 
One who said to the people of Israel at the beginning of a new epic, what we call the New Testament. And by the way, every gospel takes us through this desert. Matthew will pick up this, Luke will pick up that, John and Mark this and that. But they all pick up John and they all tell us that repentance is the inescapable beginning. It's the beginning of something new. It's the first word that John the Baptist preached was repent. And if you think he's just harsh or melodramatic, then read in chapter 3, verse 17 and see the first word that Jesus ever spoke was the word repent. And why did they call upon people to repent? Because God was on the move. Because the kingdom of heaven was nearer than it had ever been. And we're not talking about a place. Matthew uses that expression, kingdom of the heavenlies, kingdom of heaven over 30 times and no other gospel writer uses it that way. He uses it, I think, to speak to us of the dominion of God, the imminent reign of God in our world, that God would be ruler over the hearts of people as Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, God's kingdom, his reign, his dominion comes and that means his will is done. And John wanted that in Israel, in this nation where there were these um, false religious leaders, the Pharisees with their deep commitment to the scriptures, but their hypocritical way of living that out legalistically. And the Sadducees who lived, how shall I put it, in their carnal unbelief. And they were the religious leaders of the day. And here came John in camel hair and a leather belt eating locusts and wild honey saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was saying, God's about to do something new. God is on the move. And if God is on the move, we need to be on the move. And I wondered when I read this this week, if you and I are ready, if we're prepared for the next great thing that God wants to do in our lives. And this is what I know from John, that for you and I to get ready for the next big thing that God wants to do in our lives, we will have to start with repentance. It's why Tozer said, um, God will take nine steps towards you, but he will not take the 10th. God will invite you to repentance but he cannot do your repenting for you. Why should we repent? Because God's about to do something. Because because God is about to do something new among us. Because God is on the move. And the way we get ready for God's next move in our lives is by turning, by changing, by repenting. So help us, God. We wait for our change to come and we collaborate with God in that change. My mentor, Larry Nixon, used to say, he who used to sail boats in the Pacific Ocean, he used to say, if you're a sailor, you can't make the wind blow, but you can raise your sail so that when the wind blows, you'll be ready to move. Repentance is like raising the sail on the sailboat. It's 
in trust, believing that God is about to do something new. That's, that's why we repent. But what is repentance? Well, it's a, it's a change. It's a transformation. God is on the move, and we know that because John the Baptist is on the move, because he goes out into the desert to preach, fulfilling the words of Isaiah that a prophet will come. And he's, he's not much to look at. In fact, if he came in and sat down on the pew beside you, I'm pretty sure you would inch away from him. When it says he was wearing camel's hair, it wasn't that he had a camel's hair blazer. When it says he was wearing a leather belt, it wasn't an Allen Edmonds belt. He was likely odiferous as he sat down, as he stood, as he preached, as he led the people into the water. He was saying... God is on the move. The king has come. The king is near. Not long after this, he will point his disciples in a direction and say, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows Jesus is among them, his cousin near to him in age. He knows that all heaven is about to break loose. And if God is on the move, one thing we know for sure We ought to be on the move. And so the people move. They come out of Jerusalem. Mark says he emptied Jerusalem. Everybody who was anybody went, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everybody wanted to come and see and maybe be a part, or at least in the case of the Sadducees and Pharisees, look like they were being a part. And then the first thing he says is, repent, turn, change your mind, change the way that you live. Just this week, I was reading for a seminar that I planned to attend, um, the, the little book, Grapes of Wrath. And as I was reading that, that book, I, I was um, reminded of how hard times were in the Depression. And all this week as I was reading it, I was encountering people who either, who either lived through part of the Depression or people who now are struggling and needing to find uh, work. And I read about those who are moving to North Dakota to take advantage of that new economic opportunity up there. My father has a friend who's, who's commuting from Colorado to North Dakota. And I was reading about the people and about the preacher, or at least the former preacher who joined them. And the man named Al who who had not helped his wife when she was sick and she had died and he had always blamed himself and always tried to make up for it by being kind to children. And finally he has a preacher and he says, what do you think about sin? And the preacher, the former preacher, Jim Casey, says, what I know about sin is every man builds his own sin from the ground up. Maybe you've seen these protest movements. I've been intrigued by them. People are protesting most everything these days, Wall Street and tuition at college and various other things. And, and I wondered if we'll ever see a protest movement where the people are carrying signs that say, me, I'm protesting against me. The problem with trying to run away from our sin is when we finish running, we're still there. It's really about us. It's why Chesterton answered the essay contest, What's Wrong with the World, by saying, I am. It's it's why Switchfoot sings, Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm to blame. Maybe I'm the one who's cloudy. Maybe I'm the one who's about to rain. Maybe... Maybe it's us and, and John will not let us off the hook and that's why the people came and that's why they were moved and that's why they confessed, said the same thing about God. By the way, that's why, that's why the new NIV is, is right about this. It's not that God tolerates our sin, but it, that he forbears and doesn't judge our, our sin as he might. It's, 
It's why you and I must come to terms with the truth that it's our sin that's getting us in trouble. And the protest movement that that John led was against the sins of the people and they were protesting their own sin. That's why they walked in the water. That's why they came out feeling clean. Because they had turned from their sin. The great thing about repentance is it... it, um, It probes our hearts. It prepares us for what God is about to do. It prompts us to move. And best of all, true, true repentance produces fruit. That's why John was so harsh with those Sadducees and and Pharisees. He knew that they, they weren't really part of what God was about to do, but they wanted to look like they were. It doesn't do if you're a religious leader in Israel, if there's a great spiritual movement, for you not to be a part of that. And so it, it looked, it's like those bumper stickers that say, Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. You know, you don't have to do anything, but you need to look like you're doing something. But God is not fooled, is he? And John was not fooled. And he, he calls them snakes. There's no other way to look at that. That's what he calls them. And if that's disconcerting to you, just realize Jesus used the same epithet for them twice. He called them vipers, snakes. You know, snakes aren't very smart, but they know enough to get out of the way of the fire. And John was a, a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. Not the kind that we're around very much anymore. Those kinds who you know, started loud and got louder. It looked like a bee had just stung them the whole time that they preached. John was that kind of guy. If he hadn't made somebody mad by eight o'clock in the morning, he was having a bad day. This is who John is. He doesn't care a whit about what the spiritual, the religious intelligentsia think about him. All he cares about is what God thinks about him. So he calls them snakes running from the wrath Years ago, Melanie and I lived out in the country in a parsonage and there was a big field beside us. There was a a horse in that field and periodically they would come and mow the grass there. And when they mowed the grass, the mice would move into our parsonage. We would see them skittering about at night. And, And that was bad, but it wasn't as bad as what happened afterward when I reached into the cupboard and heard a vibrating sound and looked inside and saw the segment of a snake slithering through our cupboard. And And having emptied the cupboard after I put my boots on, thinking I guess I was safer with boots on, I emptied the cupboard and then invited one of my country boy friends over and we started emptying the cupboard. And wouldn't you know it, the snake was gone until late that night when I got up to get a drink of water and was walking into the kitchen and flipped on the light and there the snake was stretched out full length on the floor. I did what you would do. I started nuking him with the canned goods that I'd pulled out of the cupboard. And and did you know snakes can back up? He backed right underneath our dishwasher and then I thought, what am I going to do? Because if Melanie finds out about this, my newlywed wife is going to move back home with her parents. It's only 40 miles from Waco to Temple and I knew she would move home. And so I called my uncle, who's a rather amateur herpetologist, my uncle Lloyd, and said, what, what do I do? And he said, well, do you have mice? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he's just followed his food source in. I said, good, because I've put out rat poison for the mice. He said, no, not good. I said, why not? He said, well, if the mice eat the rat poison and then the snake eats the mice, then the snake will die. And I said, I'm trying to track with you here. Tell me what's wrong with that. He said, well, we don't want the snake to die, do we? We, we love snakes. Snakes are good. I'm still trying to understand my Uncle Lloyd. But Melanie didn't move home and the snake never showed up again. I've always wondered if the next pastor one night went in and flipped on the light in the kitchen and and there the snake was. I don't know what happened to the snake. But I know snakes know how to get out of the way of the lawnmower and to follow their food source. And, And here are the Pharisees and Sadducees and here we are today. 
And it's important to look religious, isn't it? If there is something that God's doing, we don't want to look like we're on the outside, but it'd be better to be a part of it, to produce fruit. That's the term that John uses. It's the term that Jesus will use again and again. He he will say, you recognize a a tree by its fruit. In chapter 7, verse 16, he he says, um, chapter 7, verse 18, good trees don't produce bad fruit and bad trees don't produce Good fruit. In in chapter 12, verse 33, make a tree good and it will produce good fruit. Chapter 13, verse 22, again, he says, we need not to be choked out by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth because they will make us unfruitful. And I'll tell you how you know whether or not you've really repented. I gave this a lot of thought this week. You'll know whether or not you've really repented by whether or not you've really changed. I wonder what's keeping you and me from bearing fruit for God's kingdom. And whatever that is, whether it's worry or the deceitfulness of wealth or some recurring sin in our lives, for God to do the next big thing in me and you, in us, Well, that sin has got to go. We've got to turn. We have to be changed. John Newton wrote our favorite song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew what it was to be a wretch. He used to be a slave trader. And then when he turned from that, he really turned and became a pastor uh, there in Awnee in in, uh, England. And he inspired others who wrote hymns and, and Wilberforce, the member of parliament who ultimately led to the eradication of slavery there in England. And if you remember the movie Amazing Grace, there's a beautiful scene that recounts an historical event where Wilberforce goes to Newton and says, I need your help. And Newton gives him a list, even though he's now blind. I once was blind, but now I see, he wrote. He was not as blind as he used to be because he was no longer promoting the slave trade. He was trying with Wilberforce to get it stopped. 45,000 college students descended on Atlanta this week. One of my sons was one of them. And they went into the CNN center there and they heard preachers and one preacher from Australia who, who talked about slave trafficking and, and said, you know, we sort of breathe a sigh of relief and say, aren't we glad we don't live in that time when there are slaves? But In fact, in our world today, there are more slaves than there have ever been. 27 million slaves have been trafficked in our lifetimes, on our watch. And the speaker asked those students, what I'm going to ask you, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about changing our lives so that we become instruments of change in this world because I'll tell you about God. Tozer's right. He'll take nine steps toward you but he won't take the tenth step. That one is ours to take and he'll invite us to repent but he can't do our repenting for us. Spurgeon preached for weeks in a row on repentance. Finally, one of his members came to him and said, when are you gonna stop preaching about repentance? And Spurgeon said what I will say to you. When you repent, let's pray. Father God, I thank you 
for warning us of fire and reminding us to return to you before it's too late. And Father, help us not to waste one more moment choosing to walk in disobedience to you. But let us turn until we come around right and change our minds, God. And thank you, Lord, that we can repent because the kingdom of heaven is near to us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.